Welcome, everybody. I'm glad you could all make it today. We're very lucky to have four really important speakers here. And I want to start off first by introducing, and they have to be brief. I mean, every one I could speak 20 minutes about. But Dr. Julia Yershenko, third one in, um, who, who is a, um, uh, an academic from Greenwich University and um, uh, a senior lecturer and researcher in, the politi in political economy at the Political Economy Governance Finance and Accountability Institute. Her research focuses on state, society, capital complexes, transnational class formation, and the political economy of Ukraine and the post-Soviet peace. I, mean, I was delighted when trying to organize this activity to find Yulia. She has written a brilliant book called Ukraine and the Empire of Capital, From Marketization to Armed Conflict. And so I really urge you to have a look at that book. I mean, it's, it's a, one of the best interpretations I've seen of what's happened to Ukraine since the breakup of the USSR. And it takes it, you know, the, 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 the analysis right from that time and its historical antecedents uh, right up to uh, uh, 2018. So after this conflict, this war really began in the mid, in 2014-15. Secondly, my old friend and colleague, Dr. Anna Medviva. Anna is a, um, a, a senior research fellow, visiting research fellow at the Russia Institute at King's College, London. Her research focuses on tra trajectories of violence in post-Soviet conflicts and the challenges to liberal peace. She's written extensively on the issues of conflict and peace in Ukraine and is author of Through Times of Trouble, Conflict in Southeastern Ukraine Explained from Within. Um, you'll find links to their biographies and further publications. I mean, Anna has done primary research in the Donbass, and I'm sure she'll refer to some of the insights that she has taken from that experience. And third, um, I want to introduce uh, Professor David Luke, who's professor of practice um, at our own department, uh, international development, and he's strategic director, I stress strategic director, <laughs> of the Firoz Laji, Institute for Africa at the LSE. Uh, Professor Luke has decades of experience in policy advisory services, managing and catalyzing research, building partnerships, training, and capacity development for private sector and government. He, he's published a lot and recently on uh, trade issues to do with Africa, and I think he'll be able to comment on how the conflict Russia-Ukraine is having reverberations across sub-Saharan Africa and the developing world. And last but not least, I'd like to introduce Sir Mark Lokak. Uh, Sir Mark, I guess we have to call you. Hey. <laughs> He's visiting professor of practice in, the in our own international development department here at the LSE, and he's a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. Mark has, Sir Mark, has a very long career in DFID. I think we first met long years ago um, uh, 
And from 2011 to 2017, he was the permanent secretary of the UK Department for International Development. That makes you one of the near last <laughs> permanent secretaries before that department was, was debunked. He's now working, doing, I mean, he's written all sorts of interesting things. Google him. He has a long experience interacting with issues of international conflict uh, and international development. He's right now involved in writing a history of DFID. I even heard him interviewing Claire Schwartz uh, <laughs> just before the talk began. So we couldn't have four more author uh, authoritative figures to, um, to engage in the discussion tonight. And we're going to do this in a little bit, in a little bit unusual way. Usually you have a panel and you say, okay, each person has 10 minutes to speak. So I, I made all the speakers very nervous to say, no, I'm not gonna do that. Instead, I wanna ask questions. So we'll try to get through our agenda as much as we can, but I really want to make sure that we have a good period of time for Q&A, because that's, that's such an important part of our activity here on Friday afternoons. So I'll make sure there's at least 45 minutes for the Q&A. To kick off this uh, discussion, I thought we really can't talk about the global impact of the war, et cetera, without having some idea of where it's at. What, you know, what, what's happening in this war, and it is, again, a war of asymmetric power um, uh, in, 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 in Russia and in Ukraine. And what are the sort of trajectories, what trajectories exist for reaching any sort of peace? Now, we could spend the whole evening trying to answer this question, but instead I'm going to ask the speakers to address this in a fairly succinct way, and we can follow up in the questions for sure. But can I start with Yulia? Um, thank you. I hope you can hear me okay there at the back. Um, well, um, it's difficult to obviously address all the aspects of the state of this war at this point, but I'll, I'll try to speak to some main of major ones as I see them, and, uh, and then during the Q&As, I suppose, we can pick up whatever I don't answer or other speakers don't speak to. Um, at this point, uh, I think a lot, the way that I see it, um, both domestically in Ukraine, amongst politicians specifically, and internationally, um, there, is, uh, there is almost an, an acceptance that this will be a very long war. Um, civilians do not like to talk about it as much as politicians do, but realistically speaking, it doesn't look as promising as uh, we would like it to be. Uh, the war is over a year and a half in. Um, the resources on uh, each side are uh, draining. Uh, armies are exhausted, but there seems to be no, no end in sight. Uh, the uh, 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 genocide that's now ongoing in Gaza and the, con the escalation of the conflict between Israel and Palestine has also been uh, used as a, as a distraction by Russia to start escalation on the southeastern front. Um, and uh, the, uh, the confrontations along the front line are really grueling. 
the armies, the, the armies are quite exhausted, and the uh, the count of victims is extremely high. Ukraine doesn't publish its military losses um, for strategic reasons. Um, so we are looking at a long war. How long? We do not know. It's also hybrid warfare, and I'm happy to speak to some aspects of that later during the Q&A. Uh, the economy is extremely, by now, dependent uh, on foreign aid and loans. It was already one of the most indebted countries when the war started, and I documented in my work widely if anybody wants to look at how that happened. Um, that means that uh, whatever budgetary ingoings are uh, happening in the country, they are going towards the military expenditure, and then um, through foreign aid, primarily, and uh, other forms of financing, external forms of financing, public spending is being uh, paid out. That, of course, creates uh, excess, excesses of dependencies um, uh, for the country, and that also comes with very serious uh, fiscal restrictions, not least because of loans, conditionalities, many of which are quite old, uh, and I don't want to focus on them too much. Uh, but uh, sovereignty of decision-making in the country is compromised. Uh, finance, uh, the budgetary ability to support the population is extremely compromised. Uh, it is also, since the Second World War, the biggest displacement of people in Europe. Um, uh, there are millions. Uh, we do not know exact numbers because people keep moving back and forth uh, between uh, European uh, EU countries and Ukraine. Uh, but there are millions uh, who are uh, registered as displaced and refugees in Europe. Um, there are millions who are displaced within Ukraine. There are serious problems with housing, jobs, um, affordability of various basic goods and needs. Uh, problems in the army, but specifically amongst the civilian population. Increased impoverishment and feminization of poverty happening in Ukraine. Uh, there are many plans for in and after war rebuilding, uh, many of which were discussed uh, last year, this year here in, uh, in London at the Ukraine Recovery Conference. Uh, but even according to the current plans, uh, uh, there will be a need for $411 billion for the rebuilding. It was estimation of the spring 2023. It will be significantly higher. Um, uh, and there is already projected 4.5 million shortage of workforce for that rebuilding. Uh, and, uh, and the longer the war drags, the fewer people are indicating in their surveys amongst refugees that they are willing to come back. So no matter how, how great a plan you have and how many commitments you have for the rebuilding, if people don't come back, all the plans are dead in the water. And that is a primer, that is a major source of concern for me, and I'm engaged in a number of research projects that, uh, that try to kind of see what, what would make people want to come back. And that experience also speaks to other conflict-ridden places and other disaster-ridden places. How do you rebuild from rubble? Uh, how do you make places livable? How do you build future out of genocide and destruction? Because what we see in Ukraine now, it's a, it's a widely documented genocide and indeed uh, Russian authorities themselves are very good at producing evidence of conducting genocide in Ukraine. So, Yulia. Yeah, so it's quite, so, uh, so, it is, so the situation is quite, um, is quite 
uh, dire. Yeah. It's quite dangerous. And now, of course, with the escalation in the in between Israel and Palestine, we see that the the attention and the, the attention of different institutions, international and politicians, and international community are being torn between these uh, these two conflicts. But of course, there are so many more around the world that require our attention. Thank you. And you'll have a chance to perhaps say a, few, a little bit more before we're, we, we turn over to Q&A about the, the future trajectories. Anna, can I? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I would like uh, to um, maybe um, complement this picture uh, with some of the kind of war and peace developments. Firstly, where we are now, um, uh, Russia now controls 18% of uh, um, territory of Ukraine. Before February 2022, it controlled over 7%. Um, so that is a kind of um, quite significant territorial gain, given that Ukraine is a large country. Um, uh, according to the UN figures, uh, I'm quoting uh, September this year, uh, 9,000 around 700 uh, people have been killed, civilians, uh, in the course of that conflict. Um, most of them were killed on the territory um, of, yeah, controlled by the government of Ukraine. Um, and uh, that, that's over 7,400. And uh, the rest were killed on the territory controlled by the Russian forces. So you can draw the uh, maybe a, a comparison uh, to what's happening, as James just uh, told us, in, in Gaza. So this is the war duration of uh, over 20 months now. Uh, military figures, as Yulia just said, certainly the sides um, talk about casualties on the other side. They do not want to talk about their own casualties. That's quite understandable. And uh, the other figure uh, is that about uh, 3 million uh, Ukrainian uh, citizens became refugees in Russia. That figure fluctuates because when people apply for citizenship, they um, stop being refugees. And there is still up to, um, even now, movement from the territory of Russia to Ukraine and uh, vice versa. So um, this, the military situation um, has been uh, largely stagnant this year. And another matter of fact, um, Ukrainian counteroffensive this summer and autumn um, uh, got back um, among half of what uh, the Russian forces have um, taken during this war, uh, during this, um, this year. Uh, so uh, the kind of uh, the gain, the territorial configuration has not changed massively as compared to the last year. What does it tell us? Um, that, uh, first, uh, that um, uh, despite um, Western uh, military aid and uh, very courageous uh, performance of the uh, Ukrainian armed forces uh, and um, kind of high motivation for the war effort. Uh, the Russian defenses, which have been built uh, about a year ago, have proved um, uh, too difficult uh, to take. Uh, the West, in my view, quite naively believed uh, that um, uh, something which can be done 
in, in the uh, battlefield is what Western armies them have not performed themselves. That is a massive ground offensive without uh, uh, air, air, air support. Uh, in this war, um, aviation hardly played any role. Uh, because both sides, Russia and Ukraine, have uh, considerable air defenses, which means that uh, air power on which Western armies relied in operations in places like Iraq and Afghanistan have been largely redundant. So we're in a scenario of a ma major conventional uh, warfare, uh, which entails uh, heavy losses and, of course, minefields, which have to be, uh, in the end, um, uh, the, uh, yeah, um, crossed uh, on foot and military vehicles. Um, my um, concern is peace. I am uh, very unpopular with this thing because uh, they believe in the military solution means that talking about peace is uh, not um, very prominent. I have written about it. Um, yeah, policy, policy impact of uh, researchers, I think, is um, James's um, yeah, comment is uh, probably very minuscule. Um, uh, but I think that uh, some in, uh, important junctions for peace have been uh, lost. Uh, one was in uh, March 22, uh, when um, uh, Russian offensive, the Russian initial offensive did not go according to the plan. Um, Russian leadership has been um, taken aback uh, by the um, strength of uh, Ukrainian mobilization, but also by the weakness of its own uh, military strategy and uh, armed forces. So the, at that time, um, the Russian leadership was prepared to uh, withdraw from the territories, in, uh, certainly in exchange for certain concessions. Um, and negotiations started, and uh, Israel to, and Turkey, to the credit of their leaderships, have played uh, very uh, important roles at the time uh, when uh, mediation was needed. That um, a peace effort did not go anywhere. Uh, there is a lot of speculation why, but um, so that was one very important uh, lost uh, lost opportunity. The other lost opportunity was uh, a year ago after Ukrainian successful surprise offensive in the uh, uh, north of Ukraine in uh, Kharkiv region. Uh, again, uh, Russian leadership was taken by surprise and um, maybe less than the beginning, but still it was quite an important setback. I would say that uh, that's the time when uh, Ukrainian negotiation position could have been uh, probably at its utmost strength. Since then, I would say that in the war of attrition, um, uh, Russia started to gain uh, an upper hand just because it has greater capacity and uh, it also has greater resources, greater population, and largely managed to learn lessons from the uh, last year's disasters and uh, now it's more on the upward trajectory. Um, what made negotiations very, uh, any kind of pe viable peace initiative also quite difficult is that uh, Ukraine has adopted by the presidential degree uh, a year ago uh, that no negotiations with, the, uh, with Russia are possible uh, where, um, uh, while uh, President Putin is in power. Um, uh, which means that uh, negotiations cannot be called with the uh, Russian leadership. 
um, there is a lot of speculation how long uh, President Putin will remain in power. So far, he does not show indication of uh, being ready to drop dead in front of our eyes. So we would probably uh, continue with the uh, stalemate as it is. Okay. Thank you, Anna. A very complex question dealt with very succinctly. Um, Come back, like I said. Your schooling, James. To future, <laughs> future possibilities. Uh, Mark, I, I'm gonna. I want you, in a moment, a little bit later, to speak more about the global impact of this. But from your own vantage point about peace, what's your assessment of the trajectory is going forward? Well, I think we've had a brilliant overview yeah. from both Julia and Anna of yeah. the the main things. I, I, make a couple of points yeah. if I may, three points possibly. Firstly, um, I think it's underappreciated how well Ukraine has done in protecting civilians, despite the huge barrage of Russian missiles and so on that we've seen and the atrocities we've seen. It, they're horrific numbers in the no terms of number of civilian lives lost, but um, the last um, very difficult problem I was closely engaged with when I was responsible for humanitarian affairs at the UN was the civil war in northern Ethiopia where 600,000, 700,000 mostly civilians lost their lives following an invasion by Eritrea and the deployment of Ethiopia's national army in Tigray. And so it shouldn't go without mention how well Ukraine has done, relatively speaking, in protecting civilians compared with northern Ethiopia or Syria or other places. <coughs> the second observation I would make, which gets to your question on trajectory, is I think that what we need to see is, um, in parallel, a focus on reconstruction but also sustaining the economy of Ukraine. Those two things will need to be done together because I, like you, think this is going to last much longer than people Sorry. would like it to last. And I think a significant area for improvement of European support for Ukraine, which, by which I mean not just the EU, but also non-EU members of the European continent, including the UK, including others as well, would be much greater predictability and volume and change composition of economic support for Ukraine. The Europeans can fairly say that they don't have the military heft, for example, that the US have, and 90% of the military support for Ukraine has come from the US because they, that's the power with the resources. The Europeans do not have the same excuse on the economic side and I think they would be wise to plan and lean in for a longer period of support um, for Ukraine than they are thinking about. And then lastly on trajectories and prospects, I think it's going to matter a lot how things play out in the US. It was very notable that while um, before all the fun and games over changing the speaker in the House of um, Representatives in the Congress, um, the deal that was done to keep the government going did not allow more support for Ukraine. And the person who's just assumed the speakership has a track record of being opposed to that. Um, and there's a short-term issue that arises from that because Ukraine will need a lot more support with the air defences to get through what's expected to be a big barrage over this winter but there's also a longer term issue as well and I, I'm not sure that 
European countries have been fast enough off the blocks in terms of thinking through the medium-term implications of having a, you know, a very warlike neighbour and how you cope with that and prepare for that. I think people have um, been a little bit rose-tinted about the prospects for longer-term US support and, and um, you know, I think we'll, we'll have to see some changed decision-making behaviours arising from that if Ukraine is to continue to hold the invasion at bay. Mark, thank you. Thank you for that. And, you know, we, we might come back to the issue in the Q&A of the difference of the attitude towards sustained military support for Ukraine and the kind of almost unconditional support the United States is extending to Israel as it, you know, it, it exercises its quite brutal uh, follow-up on the brutal attack they suffered from Hamas. So, but we'll come back to that. Um, David, I'm wondering if I can already ask you, unless you want to comment on yes, the I think I would, actually, trajectory yeah. of the piece. Uh, a okay. few, yeah, and a few, want, just a few comments I'll ask on you that. Another question. And I'll be really very brief. But firstly, yeah. let me just say that this is a very impressive uh, turnout for a Friday afternoon, uh, so well done. <laughs> and uh, especially a wet Friday afternoon, and also thanks for having me here. No, just very briefly, um, just to remind everyone that um, there was an African initiative, a peace initiative, um, I think in June. Uh, this year when the African Union, um, you know, uh, sent a delegation uh, to uh, both Moscow and, and Kiev um, uh, and didn't get very far for all the reasons that I've already mentioned. But um, uh, I'd just like to remind that um, what was in their package, their proposals, could actually be what would be the basis of um, uh, a peace deal if one was to emerge. And um, what they had in their proposal was the escalation of the conflict, um, that the UN Charter, the sovereignty of uh, Ukraine, should be respected, uh, that, um, and this was the off-ramp for Russia, that uh, security guarantees should be given for, for Russia, since it claims that um, it has NATO on its borders and, and so on. Uh, then, of course, they had something about uh, supply chains, uh, food, fertilizer, fuels to the, uh, Black, uh, the Black Sea. Uh, humanitarian assistance for the victims of the of, of the war, uh, the return of um, refugees and uh, children who were uh, abducted, and then the post-war reconciliation effort. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, it was very interesting to see Africans doing this, but I guess this also speaks to the uh, multipolarity of um, of the way the international system is evolving. And then some works, of course, uh, were saying at the same time why the Africans did not stop over in Khartoum and try to sort uh, Khartoum out before going to uh, Kiev and, uh, and uh, Moscow and, and all that. But, um, uh, but yeah, but I think, uh, you know, whatever happens, I think these are the sort of elements, especially the off-ramp for Russia on the security aspect. Thank you, David. I mean, it really is unprecedented, isn't it, to have uh, this collective action from African states vis-a-vis -vis, uh, a, a conflict in Europe. Um, uh, absolutely, and as I said, it speaks to um, the growing sort of geopolitical fragmentation, this multipolarity that we're beginning to see. Although, of course, myself, I'm skeptical that the economic heft of the African countries, and I'm sure will come to this, uh, um, you know, really is really punching far above your weight, um, you know, in these matters. But okay. anyway. I'm going to come back to you in a moment, but first, Yulia and Anna, uh, a brief follow-up, and then I want to get us on to the kind of global impact issues of the war. Uh, 
I wanted just to say a couple of words on the possibilities of peace because I didn't um, get a chance. I didn't. Um, I, I didn't speak to that. So, um, and partly it's uh, Anna to what you were saying. Like you know, I I, I also think you know we we can uh, we can argue till we're blue in the face as to what exactly happened in the March of 2022, and there was these talks about possibilities for peace negotiations. Well, I was in Ukraine at the time, and I, I was following everything very closely, and I remember very well how these narratives were developing, and then, you know, Boris Johnson visited Kiev and the rest of it. Also, that's where Russian, uh, Russians were, uh, Russian troops were pushed uh, out from the north of Kiev, and mass graves and evidence of genocide were evidence and, uh, evidenced. And the point of public outrage over that was so high that no politician in charge of Ukraine in their right mind would have dared to sign anything that would have looked like a ceasefire with Russia at that point. Because then Ukrainian people would themselves get rid of that kind of president. So that is something that I think needs to also be remembered that Ukrainian people, when they are not happy with their leaders, have a very good way of getting rid of them very fast. Uh, and I joke about it uh, a bit that, uh, you know, finally Ukrainians have leaders who are actually representing the popular will. And that is Zelensky actually refusing mm -hmm. to accept any peace deal that doesn't include Russians leaving Ukrainian constitutional borders. So in, th in that way, to me, the possibility for peace was lost on the 24th February 2022. There were already DPs deals, ceasefires signed with Russia involved. First of all, there was already Budapest Memorandum signed in mid-90s when Ukraine gave up nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in exchange of security guarantees from countries that included Russia. And then Russia goes and invades Ukraine. And that also presents a very serious international challenge for nuclear and otherwise disarmament. Because if, uh, if permanent security members states of the United Nations, nuclear powers, throw away their own security guarantees, who, who will want to voluntarily give up their weapons? So, of course, again, the whole you know, militarization is a separate conversation that we can be having for a very long time, but those things are very important. So another thing, another stumbling block in signing up any peace treaties is that the map of Ukraine and Russia, that Ukraine and Russia see are different maps. Russia already annexed four oblasts of Ukraine and Crimea in, in violation of all international laws and Ukrainian domestic including territories of some oblasts that Russian troops were not in at the time. What any of that means, hell knows. But that's Russian foreign policy. And will, what would need to happen domestically in Russia for Russia to say, well, we're giving up those oblasts now, they're Ukraine. This is for, for people who specialize in Russia to, to, to answer to because like you understand you know that stuff better than I do like there can be some sort of you know reverence discursive that they could go into but this is not something that you can step away very easily and when every Ukrainian knows and has relatives in occupied territories that are tortured kidnapped mutilated castrated raped they know what's going to happen to those people who if you leave them behind nobody will want to agree to that kind of that's not peace so I think this paints a very stark picture of the prospects for coming 
to yeah, and I think there will need to be something that will be classified as military defeat of Russia. What shape that will take and what it will look like, it's for us to see. But you do not sign peace treaties with genocidal war criminals. This is a terrible international precedent, and I do not want to live to see that kind of thing. What I think some people, when they think about kicking Russian troops out, and a military defeat of Russia, they imagine that there will be some sort of ironing out of territory all the way to the border. It doesn't have to be that. It has to be something that qualifies as a defeat geopolitically, and then there may be a ceasefire, pullback of troops, perhaps international peacekeepers. It can take all sorts of different scenarios. Okay, right? thank you. Anna, um, fairly briefly, if possible, and then I want to shift the discussion a little bit. Yeah, uh, sure. A um, couple of different points. Uh, one is about what you mentioned. Yeah, um, uh, the African Peace Initiative. We also should see, uh, give credit to the Chinese leadership, um, the Israeli leadership, Turkish. Uh, they have all came up uh, when with um, ideas with good offices are uh, with um, yeah, trying to be fair to all sides um, at the time when um, uh, help was needed. Um, the reason that these efforts so far have not um, came to fruition are um, quite complicated, but we do see a um, real rise of uh, multipolarity, uh, that there is not just one kind of um, center of the world, uh, especially, especially you know, given that the UN Security Council is so um, hopelessly paralyzed. Uh, we also should see these uh, initiatives in the global debate on decolonization. Uh, and um, I'm quite uh, sad that it has not been uh, seen here in that light, uh, because I think that is kind of quite considerable. Um, a political weight, uh, irrespective of what the outcome, what we have seen so far. Uh, in terms of uh, what future bears, I have uh, lived and worked in Syria for the UN, and I have seen a long war from within. And I know what it does to states and society, um, to how population relates uh, to their original causes, how they endure, what fatigue, war fatigues, uh, fatigue does uh, for um, mass kind of uh, pro-war mobilization. And I think that is uh, the processes which we start seeing in Ukraine are pointing in that direction long war, uh, exhaustion, uh, fatigue, um, immigration. Uh, Russia has overturned the worst situation it was in uh, last year. It is now on the upward trajectory. Its economy has been growing 2% this year. So it does, it's, it, both economically and politically, it can endure and absorb uh, the costs which are not as high as uh, expected. Yeah, I, I think the extension of the war in length of time is going to see enormous suffering. And a long war from within recalls the situation in Palestine as well, facing a, a very long war indeed. Um, 
I want to I want to shift gears just a little bit so that we can cover a bit more terrain about the impact of this war uh, beyond the borders of Russia and Ukraine. So it was very striking to me when war broke out to immediately see because I hadn't quite realized I knew Ukraine is a you know, red basket of, uh, 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 of that region, but also the extent to which. Um, so many countries, and particularly countries in North Africa, Egypt, something like 50, 60 percent of its grain was coming from Ukraine. And so we saw um, an immediate impact on food prices, food security, etc., from, from, from this. And um, uh, of, of course, we, we have seen you know, this reverberate through Sub-Saharan Africa in particular. Uh, so not only North Africa and the Middle East. Um, we, we withdraw from the market this enormous amount of food production. So, you know, this is clearly for me was one of the most obvious immediate impacts. But then, you know, clearly there, the war provokes a sort of geopolitical shifts as well to where you saw the, the same mercenaries that were acting on behalf of Russia and Ukraine, intervening and fighting increasingly, you know, in, in the Sahel and, you know, in, in Africa. So the geopolitical alignments also shifting. So I just wanted to get onto this terrain a little bit. So how do you, I want to start with you, David, how do you might see some of these impacts of the war affecting developing country prospects? Um, uh, where do we begin? Because it's <laughs> quite a broad uh, question. Um, you know, firstly, uh, let me sort of approach this from an African perspective. And uh, I think the first thing that we saw uh, in the UN General Assembly votes is that the uh, African countries themselves were quite split. I think uh, about 48% uh, of them uh, voted uh, in favor of the resolution condemning the motion. Uh, invasion. Um, so that was the majority. I think about uh, um, you know another 35, close to 40 percent um, abstained. Um, uh, about 10 or 12 percent uh, didn't vote, no show um, uh, at all. And uh, actually, only one African country voted with Russia, and that was um, Eritrea, which is you know a sort of a barrier uh, anyway. Uh, then there was another vote uh, a few weeks later um, on Russia's membership of the UN Human Rights uh, Council, and that vote from the Africans mirrored more or less what we saw in the General Assembly. So very clearly, um, for the Africans, this principle of um, non uh, or inviolability of um, international borders is very important, and that you know that's only uh, makes sense because uh, as uh, new states themselves not want to see their borders being invaded and, and so on. Um, but um, as we've already mentioned, uh, we're seeing this um, multipolarity and so we're seeing all these actors uh, wanting to step into this to see um, you know, uh, how they could exercise their own interests in relation to the food security uh, aspect. And, and here, um, I'm actually right now doing some research on Africa's food security and uh, one of the surprising findings is that um, Contrary to what is portrayed in the media, the impact on Africa has not been that much 
Um, uh, that's because the trade flows are small. Um, and let me sort of break this down. Uh, firstly, um, there was already uh, a post-pandemic surge in prices. Um, you know, as we all know, the inflationary surge, the monetary tightening, and, and all that um, in sort of 2021, 22. Uh, but then when you look at the FAO food price index uh, uh, for March 2022, there was a spike, um, you know, about uh, 10 basis uh, points uh, on the spike, I think from about 133 points to about 143 uh, points. Uh, so very dramatic uh, uh, impact. And, and if you look at the uh, trajectory of the index uh, throughout the, uh, uh, this century since 2000, which I've looked at, uh, there were only two other spikes, um, but which were not as high as what we saw in March uh, 2022, and that was in 2007 to 8, the, uh, the, the financial crisis, and then also in 2011, uh, when there was a, um, a surge in commodity uh, prices, which had to do with Chinese demand and, and, and so on. So very clearly, uh, the war had an impact. Now, in terms of the trade flows with the African countries, as you mentioned already, um, uh, uh, James, it was mainly uh, North African countries like uh, Egypt, um, the Horn of Africa, um, and Eastern Africa uh, to some extent. And this had to do with um, wheat, barley, sunflower, sunflower oil, uh, where they, you know, sort of imports from both Ukraine and and uh, and, um, and and Russia. But the quantities are relatively small because these, um, uh, the uh, imports are quite diversified uh, for these products. Also, um, they're getting um, these products from places like the US, Canada, uh, even parts of Europe, and, and so on. Uh, and this only, if you think about it, um, Africans eat rice um, throughout the continent, uh, which is not produced by these countries. Um, and also, in West Africa, there is huge consumption of yam and cassava. Because, you know, since I'm working on food security, I've looked at, broken down the sort of basic uh, foods. In East Africa, it's mainly maize, um, and uh, imports are from places like the U.S., uh, you know, for the, uh, the deficits. Um, uh, and even, I uh, looked again even at um, beer production, which uses barley. Uh, in Africa, it's mostly sorghum that is now used. Uh, so, uh, you know, so contrary to what one sees in the media, it's not been as dramatic, but of course, um, you know, the food price hikes and uh, these places that have been affected and, and, and so on, it has um, impacted, uh, impacted them. And that's what, of course, led to the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which, as we know, um, uh, you know, was, um, uh, was negotiated by Turkey in uh, uh, the July 2022, I think it was. And then, of course, Russia has uh, pulled out of it uh, about 12 months later, we did not allow it to be renewed and, and so on. And this also was one of the issues that the Africans were pursuing when they uh, launched their peace um, initiative. I'm going to come back to you about the more <coughs> geopolitical yeah, sure. impact yeah. in relationship to Africa. But Mark, first, before, and I know that you did some work on the food crisis. So I agree with, with what David yeah. has said. I would add just a few points. I mean, firstly, um, it was a real problem when Ukrainian grain markets were closed that lots of UN agencies had contracts to buy Ukrainian WFP. grain, WFP in particular, to provide in famine or famine risk contexts. 
that was a huge a huge problem and it was solved by two things basically firstly the black sea grain initiative which allowed some of the grain out but secondly um, the putting on the table of five billion dollars by Samantha Power from the US Agency for International Development because the price had gone up getting the grain was yep. more expensive there was a clear and present danger of a a famine, which is the most extreme form of a humanitarian crisis in a small number of countries, in Somalia, in South Sudan, in Yemen, potentially in Afghanistan, um, and there was a man-made, um, in my opinion, I mean, I've been quoted publicly on this, much to the annoyance of some of my friends in the relevant government, there was effectively a man-made famine in northern Ethiopia already playing out, not because of this, but because of um, the war. So. Um, Though that intervention did prevent what would have been a, ve a very stark, extreme tragedy, the like of which we've largely got rid of in the human condition in the 21st century. So that was, it was important that happened. But I do agree with you that um, otherwise people broadly cope quite well. And of course, the other thing the Black Sea Grain Initiative did was buy time for there to be substitution away from Ukrainian grain. In 2021, Ukraine produced 86 million tonnes of grain, mostly wheat and uh, maize. In, in 2022, because of the war, it was down to 64 million. But, but this year, the best projections I've seen are more like 35 or so. And um, that is not having a massive effect on markets because there's been substitution elsewhere, including, I'm afraid to say, ironically, higher Russian levels of um, production and export, and also in some of Ukraine's western neighbours where there's now this tension that's emerged between Polish farmers and Ukrainian farmers, which is an unfortunate dimension of what's, what's, um, what's happened. I think, I think otherwise on the geopolitics, my own view is, is not so much that um, many countries in the developing world have changed their view, it's just that their views have been crystallised and have been, been clearer to lots of Western countries who frankly were not paying enough attention to how many of these countries felt about how things were playing out. And that goes back to, it goes back to failures in the um, pandemic especially, uh, both on the vaccine side, but also an atrocious failure to provide economic support in um, the course of the pandemic in the way that had been done during the course of the 2008-09 um, financial crisis where um, people have forgotten now, but in February 2009, Gordon Brown convened the G20, was able to generate a trillion dollars, which did ease the impact of the financial crisis. It's by far the best crisis in terms of how they've coped that, that developing countries have been through. And the, the, the atrocious failure to do that during the pandemic, um, together with other things, meant that when the invasion happened, um, the starting point for many um, countries the West thought they could rely on was not what the West had believed. I think, that's, I think that's really important because we see much deeper underlying transformations going on, not even to mention you know, a, a greater role of China and Sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the developing world, Latin American countries, etc. First, Anna, I know you wanted to come back on this. 
Just very briefly, I think that um, what Mark has, oh, sorry, Mark has already Mark, al Mark. Yeah, <laughs> has alluded to is uh, yes, we cannot take European politics out of the Green Deal uh, because it's not only about Ukrainian grain, it's also about Russian grain and how much they can or cannot export and where. Um, but um, Black Sea is not the only route by which uh, Ukrainian grain uh, can reach markets. It can, it, there are land routes. Uh, one land route is uh, through Eastern Europe, countries of the European Union, Poland, Slovakia, um, on the uh, western borders of Ukraine. The other route is via Belarus. Uh, these routes uh, have proved very complicated, mainly for political reasons, uh, to do with the countries on the, uh, Ukraine's borders, because they do produce a lot of uh, grain themselves. Uh, their inputs are higher uh, price, so their uh, production costs more. And we are seeing now the um, kind of, it becomes a political issue in these countries, um, elections in Slovakia, yeah, uh, Polish politics, um, route via Belarus is again blocked for political reasons. Uh, so uh, yeah, we cannot just say that everything is uh, pegged on the Black Sea ports. Okay, I wanna ask just one last question, and Yulia, you can bring in your, I'll let mm. you go first um, with this. Um, and, and so that we can move to the audience's questions, which I'm sure there'll be many. Um, so this war is having, a, we've alluded to it, a transformative impact on both Russia and Ukraine. And, and it's really likely to, to, to transform the role they may play in global politics and the global political economy in the future. Uh, I know, Julia, we were talking earlier, and you had some, I think, important insights into where Ukraine has stood and where it's standing now in, in the context of this war uh, in terms of global politics. But, but also, this is having a profound impact, I think, in Russia and Russia's place in the international system. So I'm wondering if we just briefly, because I do want to get on to the questions from audience, you might want to respond to this. And, Sorry, yeah. I thought you, I thought you were looking no, at Marie. Thank you, for, uh, thank you uh, for that question. I want to um, first kind of finish yeah. speaking about the um, like to, to make just a couple of points to this uh, to the excellent yeah. discussion about the food security mm -hmm. uh, and kind of to bring it to a kind of slightly uh, kind of wider perspective and more long-term horizons. Wars are ecocidal events by definition. Uh, global military is responsible for 5.5% of all greenhouse gas emissions, and that's in addition to all sorts of other waste, contamination, and uh, toxic chemicals. Um, in the first year of this war, 122 million tons of CO2 alone were, were uh, thrown up in the atmosphere that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So wars contribute to global heating and therefore further compromise future food security. This is very important. This is just in the first year. On top of that, there is, of course, heavy contamination and, and mining of uh, agricultural land. 
some 30% of land in Ukraine are mined. I, I do not like using that statistic too much because some areas are very densely mined, some not. So we're talking about the kind of square mileage, but some areas are less contaminated than the rest. But it's quite problematic and expensive to do. So that land that could be used to alleviate world hunger, to bring down international prices, it will take a while for it to be usable again. On top of that, of course, we have the blowing up of the Kachovka Dam, Nova Kachovka Dam this summer that has emptied the massive water reservoir, compromised safety of the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe. I, I really hope it doesn't blow up, but we, we still don't know what's going to happen with that. But also what it does, it changes water tables, right? There is ecocidal damage from that, but if we're talking specifically food security, it changes water tables in the whole region, and that is in the region that is the most fertile and abundant, right? So there are still effects for us to see uh, of, uh, of that fact. And again, also war isn't over. There is ongoing contamination in Ukraine also is not the only war. So the more wars we have, the, the faster we're bringing our own extinction date. Um, in terms of the place of Ukraine and in the whole region in the world politics, I think this, um, I'll just try to, I'll, I'll try to be brief here. The longer the war goes on, and I've already documented this in my previous work, that uh, since Ukraine became independent, and, and uh, is this is also kind of a sign of uh, a number of other quote-unquote post-Soviet states. Some people don't like the terminology anymore, but I think it is still relevant to, specifically in academic discussions. Uh, a lot of those states have suffered de-development through all sorts of barrage of issues that were associated with transition to market that we can discuss in Q&A should you be interested. Uh, and of course, financial crisis, then one war and now another, have further uh, exacerbated these situations in Ukrainian case specifically, but in other countries to different extents. And that um, some Ukrainian scholars talk about Ukraine as being the northernmost country of global south. And in that sense, economically and socioeconomically speaking, Ukraine is more similar to Latin American and African countries, some of them at the very least, than some in Ukraine may like to think. That also hurts me to except that uh, a lot of socioeconomic advantages and developmental achievements that existed have been rolled back. And this is something that Ukraine is not, um, if we're talking specifically about neoliberal reforms, Ukraine has not been extreme, has not been completely unique and we're we now sitting in London, it's, uh, in, in, the, in UK that cannot regulate its water companies to stop them from dumping sewage in freshwater resources. So um, from successes of post-war rebuilding, post-Second World War rebuilding, we're looking at a, at a case where the state is failing to regulate basic public safety, right? So when UK government is advising Ukrainian, I'm really worried, to be entirely <laughs> honest with you. There are a lot of excellent things that British government has done for Ukraine, and I will always be grateful for Boris Johnson being really scared of losing his uh, office in England. Uh, and trying to play Churchill in the Ukrainian case, because Ukraine really benefited from that. He really riled up support for Ukraine uh, when the war started, and Americans were sitting on their hands with armed supplies at the time. But, um, but overall, like, you know, the, the, the war has really weakened Ukrainian economic uh, situation. It has now uh, created a lot of problems and, and kind of thrown back uh, the kind of diplomatic achievements that uh, Russia had, and I think you can, you can speak to that way more than, than I can, but it is, uh, there are a lot of um, 
complications, shall we say, is the most English way I can put it, uh, that, have, uh, that have come out of this horrendous escalation uh, that will be there with us for decades to come. Julia, thank you very much. I'm going to, um, you know, I promise that we have 45 minutes, so we have only a couple of minutes before that 45 minutes has to start for Q&A. Okay. So maybe just really briefly, if you want to say something about about the, the prospects uh, more widely internationally, for, for, uh, especially perhaps for Russia and the... Well, I, I thought I... Oh, the question was also about domestic okay. yeah, situation uh, a bit. Okay. I, I think I it's quite... I think it's quite... Can, yeah. We'll come back during Q&A, yeah. I'm sure. I, I, I think that's... But I think it's quite important. I will try to, uh, okay. to be a woman of few words and... Okay. Um, Yes, and uh, make two points. One domestically, uh, one well, um, situation in Russia has uh, stabilized, and maybe paradoxically, the identification uh, with the kind of Russian state has grown. Um, last year, uh, we had quite a lot of uh, people leaving Russia, uh, either escaping mobilization or um, being anti-war or feeling that Russia would go, um, the economy would go to dogs. Uh, that didn't happen, so now uh, there is uh, a return um, back to Russia, especially of kind of young professionals who uh, started feeling that uh, job prospects and general living standards for them are uh, better um, in Russia than abroad. And the fear of mobilization is uh, not uh, as acute. Also, we have uh, millions of people are now uh, involved in grassroots campaign of uh, help our boys at the front. Um, this, this is not organized by the state, that's purely kind of a grassroots initiative, uh, especially women's groups. Uh, so, yeah, civil society in action, maybe not what the West thought Russian civil society would be, but uh, there is a lot of grassroots action in that kind of uh, uh, helping, the, uh, helping our guys, not necessarily meaning that these people support the war. And internationally, developments show that Russia is not as isolated as the West has hoped for. Uh, yes, um, friends like North Korea and uh, Iran are probably not um, the kind of uh, our friends of necessity uh, rather than by choice, uh, but, but still, um, Russian narrative is heard, uh, its diplomacy is active, it is actually developing a lot of links with the African countries and um, parts of the globe where Russian diplomacy has been, uh, which Russian diplomacy has neglected in the um, period before the war. Thank you. David. So can I tell you a little anecdote okay. about, um, right. just to illustrate a point you just okay. made. Right. I, when I was in charge of yeah. humanitarian affairs at the UN, I used sometimes to go to Moscow and um, talk to lots of people. And I, I went a couple of times to the Russian Ministry for Emergencies. Mm -hmm. And they showed me their operations room. And it's a room which has the, um, the biggest set of screens on the wall that I've ever seen anywhere. And it's got this um, amazing, uh, Bench of uh, set of benches of um, people on um, in white leather chairs and all very high tech. It looks like something out of James Bond. This room, 
and these chairs are all occupied by particular emergency specialists because the job of this this um, outfit is to respond to all sorts of emergencies and disasters so they've got the um, infrastructure specialists they've got the power specialists the telecoms people they've got the um, chemicals people in case there's some kind of fire and then so they, they described all these desks and all, who sat where to me and then there were two spaces that they hadn't described so I, so I said so who sits in these two chairs and the answer was well in one chair sits the communication specialists and in the other chair sits the psychologist <laughs> and the message was understanding and managing public opinion is the most important thing in any emergency. And one thing we know about President Putin is that he is brilliant at doing those things. And that is why public opinion in the way you've described it is as it is. Okay, I'm getting it, Dave, the last word here. Yes, uh, no, I'll, be, I'll be brief. Um, I'll, I'll just uh, take um, Anna on, on this uh, question of um, how far Russia is making gains with the African countries. Um, if you recall, there was uh, the Russian-Africa summit in, in July, I think it was. Uh, 17 African leaders showed up. Uh, when the same summit was held in Sochi in 2019, there were about 43 African leaders mm. uh, there. You know, So I think that tells you that um, the Africans are being very cautious on, on this. And then another aspect, of course, is that, um, of course, um, the old Soviet Union supported African liberation, liberation movements and, and all that, but Ukraine, Ukraine was part of that. Um, so I think the Africans understand this. Uh, plus, um, uh, there have been more students, actually, African students, studying in Ukraine than in, in Russia. Uh, you recall when the war broke out, there was this crisis of the students uh, and, and so on. Uh, let me just stop there, but uh, you know, just to make the point that I think the Africans have been cautious uh, not, uh, so not to be drawn into this. Yulia, I'm going to let you make your point when you come in to answer some questions here, because if I don't move to the audience, we're going to lose them. Uh, so one sentence. One sentence, okay. Um, to the state of Russia and to managing pub public opinion, mm -hmm. Their data on how well Russia is performed is being all taken from Rostat. Mm. This is all I'm going to say. They've changed their heads how many times last year? Mm. Yeah. And they haven't actually collected any, any proper data since the last, second mm. quarter of 2022. Thank you. I wonder if you ever saw the screens in the Pentagon. Yeah, I've seen some of them. But okay, it's different so in terms then. Okay. How many psychologists? All right. All right. First of all, I I, I want to thank all our speakers, and let's do that now, and then I'm going to ask you guys. We're we're going to do this again and thank them again when we're finished. But now I really would like to um, open up your questions and you know I'm going to propose that we take sort of three at a time so if you could take note uh, our panelists of the questions you don't have to answer every question um, uh, and the briefer we are with questions and only one question please not the first question the second question one question please and I'll come back to you if we have time uh, and our speakers will try to be concise as well. So let me, um, let me start uh, 
first of all, so you don't feel left out. Let's, let's start up on, on top here. Hi, uh, my name's uh, Oliver. Um, I was wondering what impact uh, does this war have on security concerns between China and Taiwan? Okay, down here, I saw, I saw where did I say, okay, right here in the middle? Um, thank you so much. Uh, I forget who mentioned it, but someone pointed to the fact that the U.S. has been a main driver of military aid in Ukraine. Um, and obviously we're all seeing the package that the U.S. is trying to meld with the Ukrainian aid alongside aid for Gaza. Just curious how, um, and Israel, curious how you think that's going to impact what's going on in Ukraine if those aids are either collected together or if, if it ends up being separate. Okay, yeah, and the gentleman here, yeah. My question is to David Luke. Maybe you say who you are. Yeah, my name is Josiah Kieri and I'm from Kenya. Uh, my question is to David Luke. Uh, you yeah. said that the uh, war has not had significant Im impact on Africa's food security. Would you um, say what other area is perhaps significantly affected by, by the war in Africa? Okay, so very briefly, let's answer those questions. There's so many more questions. So. Um, going first. Um. Which I'm happy to respond to Oliver's question, which I think is okay. a really, really smart question. Yeah. Um, there's very little that um, politicians across the aisle agree on in Washington, D.C. at the moment. But one of them is anxiety about um, how to manage relations with China, in particular over Taiwan, but not just over that. And one way to understand the um, actually very high levels of US support for Ukraine is in that context because one line of thinking you hear, and I've heard this from um, you know, Obama administration officials, from GW Bush administration officials, from Trump officials, and from Biden officials, is um, we it would be very bad news in respect of our concerns over Taiwan if Russia have an easy victory in Ukraine. Um, so they see the Ukraine situation partly through the prism of hoping to put off the Chinese from a military adventure in Taiwan against the background of having heard lots of things that Xi Jinping has said about the importance of the year 2027. Um, so that definitely is going on and the question you ask is a is a good one because of that. Very good. David. Uh, yes. Um, I, I think Mark, uh, you know, helped to qualify my uh, remarks on the food security situation by saying that, um, uh, yes, indeed, uh, you know, um, countries in North Africa, Egypt in particular, the Horn of Africa, were, have been affected. So I, you know, I just want to put that in context. Uh, but I did also say that, um, uh, you know, I mean, broad parts of Africa does not consume those products. Uh, that was the, the point I was making. But I think one of the way that the war has impacted... Into uh, the mic. Into yeah, one of the way the war has impacted development um, more broadly is um, in development assistance. Uh, if you take the UK, you know, the UK slashed its um, uh, development assistance budget because of its support to um, uh, Ukraine. And you see this uh, replicated all across the OECD. Uh, countries. I don't have the figures in front of me, but uh, basically development aid um, has been significantly reduced as the support to Ukraine has, um, has been increased. Uh, and, you know, I'll give you one anecdote. Uh, 
I'm on the board of uh, Trademark Africa, which um, was supported very strongly by the UK. Uh, uh, we've been struggling uh, in that organization uh, to uh, find funds uh, for projects that we had already committed uh, because of the uh, cuts in, in, um, in development aid uh, across the board. So I think this is one area that really has been affected by the, uh, uh, by the war. Then, of course, I did mention the students. A lot of students had their education interrupted. Uh, you know, I, I think the number for Nigeria is about 5,000 Nigerian students in, in, in Ukraine. And, and these were mostly in the sciences, engineering, medicine, you know, and so on, uh, had their um, education uh, interrupted. So that's another um, uh, impact of the, of, of, of the world. So okay. look, yeah, I'll stop here. Thank you very much. Anna. Just briefly on the uh, US military aid, my argument is that our Western military assistance has perhaps peaked uh, last summer already, and uh, the tendency towards gradual scaling down has um, been settled even before the uh, uh, upheaval in Israel uh, Gaza. Um, so what's happening now uh, with Israel just kind of accelerate the trend which has been already there. That doesn't mean that the aid would stop, uh, but the uh, scaling down, yeah, step by step, would be likely. Syria is also a good example, so we will see uh, what happened under Obama, then Trump, then it's kind of uh, on the kind of decline trajectory. Julia. Um, I will just, uh, just to this one point on military aid, and I will sit out on the other ones. I think they've uh, mm -hmm. answered quite, uh, quite uh, exhaustingly. Ex yeah, I do not know what, what right. I did with that word. Um, uh, I do not, I do not see U.S. military aid to Ukraine stopping. And uh, I think it's important to look to previous conflicts for this, for potential clues. Uh, but for complicated and uh, for all sorts of different reasons, unfair, for good and bad reasons, unfair um, situation, Ukraine is in the middle of Europe. And allowing that to escalate, to be annihilated um, as easily as, and turn a blind eye to it as easily as it is to turn to Syria is not quite an option for the European Union. Uh, and we saw that with treatment of refugees, that was quite different to 2014. Uh, and uh, we saw that with all sorts of other um, aspects of aid, including military. So I wouldn't, just because there is, uh, there's perhaps been some sort of dip, I wouldn't necessarily expect that to be a permanent full stop at the end of that. Okay. Thank you. Uh, if, if I could, uh, James, just a quick point here. Yeah. Uh, actually, Biden very cleverly has tied um, Biden very cleverly has tied uh, the um, his request for uh, funding to the Congress to also um, request for Israel. So we're going to have to see how that uh, plays out. Yeah, of course, there is a kind of unknown factor in the United States the next election and what may result from that. Okay, I want to go back to all of you. Here uh, to Vladimir. Hello, everyone. My name is Vladimir, and my question is um, What obstacles do multinational corporations pose, like Lockheed Martin, who is interested in uh, benefiting from um, supplying weapons, oil, oil companies who are benefiting from uh, rising oil prices, and large food monopolies who are also interested in privatizing, for example, some resources which Ukraine possesses? Um, 
I'm going to exercise Laura's discretion of getting a gender balance. So. Hello, my name is Dua. I'm from Lebanon. Uh, my question is about how do you see the Russian-Ukrainian war on the global security scale in terms of increased aggressions in uh, Azerbaijan, Nagorno-Karabakh, and uh, the rise of the far-right governments and policies? And just to reflect on his, like, how do you see also the global uh, impact on oil prices and energy markets? Thank you. And can we have uh, right here in front? <laughs> Hello, my name is Miriam. Um, to kind of piggyback off of the question um, in regard, regarding the $100 billion aid package um, from the United States, um, I think part of Biden's messaging domestically is that the war in Russia and the war in Israel and Palestine are connected in terms of America's strategic interests and also kind of the um, America's enemies. And so I'm interested to hear your insights on what a potential um, expansion of the war in the Middle East would mean for the war in Ukraine. Okay, thank you. I'm going to go to the panel. Yeah. Who wants to go first? Mark. Um, well, thank you, James. At least I get to choose which question to answer. Yes. Um, so there's a very good set of questions. Vladimir, the unpleasant truth is there are always money. There's always money in wars. And um, one of the tricky things public policy officials and governments have to do is try to contain that. And um, I'm not an expert on exactly what businesses are doing what, but everyone can see what's happened in energy markets. Looks to me as though um, this winter will be less frenetic and difficult than last winter was in energy markets, which will hold down the um, extreme levels of profit some of those businesses are making. Um, the arms industry is making a killing. Um, and by the way, people are not paying enough attention to the scale up in a sustained way of Russia's domestic arms industry. Um, Ukraine is trying to do that as well, but Russia, of course, has so, so many more resources. So that whole area you talk about would, would justify more um, attention being paid to it. I think that um, quite a lot of the other conflicts we've seen, you, you mentioned Nagorno-Karabakh, um, we talked about northern Ethiopia, James mentioned the Sahel earlier, quite a lot of, the, of those sorts of conflicts are best understood as a symptom really of our current geopolitics, that we're past an era where um, the deterrent provided by the possibility or probability of big powers intervening is very strong. And that has made, meant that lots of people have been willing to have a go or um, you know, to dare to do things that in the past they might not have done. And I'm not optimistic that we're going to get out of this new era um, very quickly. It's a complicating factor of the modern world that we live in, I think. Thank you for the depressing outlook, yeah. Um. <laughs> well, um, yes, uh, thank you. Just uh, briefly, uh, well, in the answer to your question, we have seen a notable rise in violence uh, during this year in places which we thought were, frankly speaking, quite dormant. Yeah, um, you mentioned Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, yeah. Um, uh, forceful change um, 
of the territory. Uh, we, have, uh, we are seeing a tense uh, situation in Kosovo, Serbia. Again, that has been seen as kind of largely scaling down. Uh, Israel regarded Gaza as uh, something which does not uh, present an acute military threat. That's why yeah, the reaction. Uh, now, as we see the tide of violence on the rise, we're also seeing a possibility of domino effect uh, much greater. Yeah, Middle East, you know it better than I do, I think. Uh, and we also can see that the international mechanisms are becoming quite paralyzed. Um, as compared by the, to the 90s. But we also see that um, kind of unlikely players like Russia, for example, or Iran can play also kind of um, maybe positive roles in uh, getting out of the kind of the real threat of a wider regional war. Um, and yeah, well, US politics, uh, it's a phenomenally exciting subject, but uh, certainly we are going to have elections next year. Yeah, and uh, for uh, Democrats and you know Biden especially, um, he doesn't. Uh, his people do not want uh, Ukraine to be uh, to become a stick with which Republicans are going to uh, uh, beat him up. So, um, it, uh, so some kind of wrapping up of this issue would be very beneficial uh, for uh, Biden's campaign. Okay, thank you. Julia. Um, yeah, so briefly, because I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of the points were answered already. Mm -hmm. Which companies benefit here? Well, um, uh, just to be... Um, to, to wake up the audience a bit at the end. Well, you can say that Russian oil companies have actually quite benefited from the spike in the prices on oil. Uh, so, yeah, if you just kind of want to want to go with with uh, um, you know qui bono, <laughs> uh, you know there can be all sorts of directions you can go there. But of course, uh, some companies have, for all sorts of combination of reasons. Uh, better competitive advantages than the other, and depending on whether we're talking Ukraine, whether we're talking international markets, whether we're talking Russia, whether we're talking Turkey, different combination of players will be in place. So, um, yeah, I think like depending on again which region we pick up, which market, and which commodities, and at what time, there will be different benef beneficiaries. But just like with vaccine, just because pharmaceuticals are making money of it, it doesn't mean they started the thing. Um, just kind of to leave that there. In terms of escalation in the Middle East, I also think that you know, in potential engagement of large powers and it is spilling over into too many parties can function as, as quite a deterrent. It's up for us to see. I'm keeping my fingers crossed because like many other people I expect, I do not, I do not want that to become more worse than it, what, what it already is. I, I don't think it's also in the strategic interest of Israel to escalate it any much further because there is only so much turning of a blind eye that the United States can do to what is being done in terms of civilian casualties uh, and, uh, and attacks uh, towards Palestinians. Um, I just wanted to say, like, because we're all researchers and students and scholars here, I think, Maria, you made an important um, point about uh, dormant areas that people didn't expect to kind of erupt. This is something that you know, needs to indicate to us that you, there is no such thing as permanently frozen conflicts and dormant areas. They can always erupt at any point. And if we are thinking about planning for peace 
and thinking about peaceful resolutions of any conflict unless there is some sort of transitional justice and also socioeconomic justice that's being done in the process. There is always preconditions for future eruption that is there, just kind of as a broader theme. Uh, and when too many things start giving way at the same time, more those who are doubtful feel like this is the time to start doing something. So Thank you. I hope some lessons are learned from Thank you. it. David. Uh, best, uh, I think okay, much has been let's, said, let's go back to the audience to get some more um, questions. Yes. Rafael Jansuldanov and LSA alum, uh, thank you for such an insightful discussion. Quick question. So uh, Germany is in a recession. Uh, UK is hovering around a recession. There is um, like uh, US is facing one of the highest budget de deficits. How will these events affect the support of Ukraine despite their willingness to support the country long term? Thank you. Okay, largely about the US budget deficit. Who do we have up here? Yeah, here. Hi, I'm a student in the International Development and Humanitarian Emergencies Program. Um, quickly after the Ukraine crisis began, we saw the international community very quickly fund you know, billions of dollars uh, for the humani humanitarian response in Ukraine, which is great. Um, however, I'm wondering if you think that that response was kind of um, disproportionate in comparison to the humanitarian responses we see in northern Ethiopia, Sudan, South Sudan, etc. Okay, thank you very much. Important question. And um, okay, we have to we have to give Laura a chance. Thank you. My question is for Julia and Anna. Um, I wanted to ask, when it comes one day to negotiation. What do you think are like the kind of red lines on both sides and what are the kind of more bending lines that might be a difficult thing to accept but might one day be surpassed? And I would like to know that in Russian domestic politics and Ukrainian domestic politics. James, could I add to that? Yes. The mic, please. There. Because you're predicting a long war and we can all see the arguments for that. On the other hand, there's also exhaustion and killing and suffering, which leads me to think a frozen conflict is, is quite a likely thing, not resolving it, not a proper peace, but sort of end, you know, running down. And I'd just like to comment on that. Okay. Thank you very much, Claire. All right. I'm going to go back to the panel. If you are fairly concise, we may have round. Uh, room for another round of questions. Um, you want to go first? Um, yeah. Can I ask the name of the person who asked about the impact on the wider humanity? Mary. Mary, great. So um, <laughs> partly because it's a great question, partly because I'm involved with teaching on your course, I'm, I'm going to give you the 200-page <laughs> answer to your question <laughs> in um, the book I published last year. But, you but, but the, um, if you, you'll need, you'll need, thank you, Claire. <laughs> Claire reviewed it, so um, if you come down afterwards. Um, the, so you, you draw attention to a huge contextual problem, which is that because the causes of humanitarian problems globally, conflict, climate change, COVID have been mounting, the systems come under huge stress and the gap between needs and funds available have been growing. And one, one thing that's happened with the Ukraine crisis is um, um, the decision makers, which are mostly public officials in Western and some Middle Eastern countries, uh, when they're deciding what 
to which crisis to respond to. They're like seven-year-olds on a football pitch. They all run after the same thing. And what that means is Ukraine is a crisis which had massive funding taking money away from other things at the beginning of last year. So it's not just the gap has got bigger, the distribution has got worse um, as well. And we need to find ways of getting that talked about more, particularly in public, because that is how we will redress that, that problem. David, do you want to? Uh, the only thing I'll add to that is that um, someone pointed out also the imbalance in um, how uh, refugees, asylum seekers are treated. Uh, that, um, you know, um, people coming from uh, uh, other places uh, other than Ukraine have had a much difficult time uh, getting their claims uh, um, heard and, 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 and so on compared with uh, uh, Ukraine. I uh, would also just point out that uh, Russia very mischievously has um, uh, allowed, uh, you know, um, certainly in the case of Africans, uh, to come to uh, Russia visa visa free, no visas or or whatever, you know, sort of um, to sort of show up this, uh, this this issue. But yeah, but that has also been one way uh, that uh, this uh, this has played out. Okay, we have um, the, the red lines that Laura asked about in, in Claire's um, uh, issue around frozen conflict. So let me turn to Anna and then Julia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, but also briefly uh, to the yep. question Oops. on um, uh, the uh, kind of how much our Western societies uh, would be prepared to bear the costs of uh, uh, assistance to Ukraine. That very much depends on how much it is a matter of electoral politics. Uh, in, well, we are going to have the year 2024, there will be quite a lot of election, important elections you know, in various countries, including uh, uh, in Europe. Um, in this country, in the United Kingdom, it, Ukraine issue is not uh, an issue for electoral politics, but in a number of other countries it is. Uh, so that, um, and Western politicians, of course, have to be sensitive uh, to what uh, societies and the electorate um, feels and how they are subsequently uh, going to vote. Uh, on the um, acceptable compromises, I think it is, of course, a moving target because uh, what was, what seemed to be acceptable in March 2022 is now quite a long way. Um, so now, uh, and I'm not, well, okay, let's take Putin out of the picture. Let's uh, put uh, kind of more attractive, younger, English-speaking um, uh, guy in the driving seat, um, uh, more likely a guy rather than a lady, and uh, think, okay, uh, what I can, I cannot do. And uh, one thing which is fairly obvious that um, Russia would not be able to uh, give up all the territories of uh, Ukraine as it emerged in 1991. Uh, no Russian politician uh, would uh, give up Crimea. Um, uh, it would be, you know, some territories would certainly can be returned, uh, but uh, some kind of territorial acquisition in one form or another would probably be, uh, would have to be part of the deal from the Russian side. 
uh, if they manage to take more of the territory, which I don't think that is the current plan. But things can change. Yeah, I think now the strategy is really defensive and maybe improving the battlefield configuration rather than looking at kind of major gains. But that also can change. Yeah, if uh, there was, will be a sense we can do it, uh, there may be another major attempt at another major offensive. So that's uh, part of the deal. I think what Russia would be prepared to give, well, it would not be called uh, uh, reparations, but some kind of compensation uh, package to um, Ukraine, uh, that would be possibly a part of the deal, you know, free gas for another 50 years, something, something like this. Uh, so that's, um, that's where kind of it is uh, also, yeah, within the elite, uh, many in the elite want to uh, wrap it up it is hurting business, it's hurting economy. Uh, they want to have a, a lifting of some sanctions and better relations with the West. Uh, but um, society can bear the cost and that's, that's where we are. Okay, thank you. Um, right, so um, I'll just combine the uh, support for Ukraine with the um, red lines and potential frozen conflict. I don't think Russia is interested in this conflict being frozen now there is Ukraine, so I doubt that it will become necessarily that. Uh, of course, a lot of that depends on, again, the will population to fight, arms supplies, and dozens of other factors. Um, Ukrainians do, do not want to give up. Uh, of course, Everybody gets tired uh, of the war, but Ukrainians are fighting for their own land and their own people. It's one thing to be tired as a Russian conscript, and that's another thing to be tired as a father of children who are behind your back in their house. So those are quite different things, right? Um, some Russians are coming back to Russia because they can't find opportunities elsewhere, as we've already heard. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily interpret that as, a, as an indication of people seeing a better, a, a great life in Russia. Like, there are many Ukrainians who are coming back uh, to Ukraine from Europe as well because it's more familiar, it's convenient to them even though they live with air raid sirens and risks of being shelled. Right? So there is, that is the, that is the uh, harsh reality of being a citizen of a country that's involved in a war. Uh, the red lines for Ukrainians is constitutional borders. Crimea is a, is a matter that is quite of a special case um, that people don't like to talk about an awful lot because it's a, it's a painful matter, not least because, of course, um, it, there were ethnic purges uh, and uh, deportations of Crimean Tatars conducted uh, by the Soviets, so, the, so as to kind of create the imitation of a Russian-speaking majority on the peninsula. And so there, is, there are also rights of, Crim of Crimean Tatars that are at stake there. There are right to return home that will have been give, that would need to be accepted as something that we give up if Crimea is to stay with Russia, which is something that Ukraine will not agree to. So how 
how and where both parties will be willing or asked to accept red lines will, de will depend on what, when this war is over, under what conditions, what kind of Russia this war ends with. Is Putin still there or you know, someone else? How willing are they to actually accept some of the guilt, pay some reparations, do some, uh, participate in some sort of transitional justice processes so as to reestablish international connections, including trade connections? All of that will make a massive difference on what kind of configuration we will be looking at. There are many Russians who are really tired of this war. Uh, what we get from surveys, I wouldn't trust it as far as I can show it because people live in permanent fear. Surveys in a state where everybody is technically a hostage. You know, there, of course, there are many Russians who are cheering onto the war and we shouldn't kid ourselves with that. There are many who are really excited about it. There are those who are simply, you know, they have their relatives thrown to the front and of course they are supporting them, sending them you know, collecting the money for shoes, clothes, whatever, because it's their relatives. War is ugly for everyone. But there are those who are gleefully killing Ukrainians, and that's also a fact. And raping and castrating, including children, that is also a fact. And without proper transitional justice being established, <coughs> There can be never any lasting peace put in place, no matter what kind of configuration that will take. And we need to understand that. If Putin isn't tried, if all war crimes are not properly, uh, pro properly punished by all those who've committed them, if Russia is allowed to keep any of Ukrainian territory, we can shut the door on the United States and walk away. Certainly on the United Nations and walk away. Okay. Thank you, and that's, I mean, we do see really this, the extent to which, you know, a people whose territory is occupied, um, you know, are, are going to continue to fight. Um, and I think, I, I think we see a lot of evidence of that. Um, I'm going to end this in an unorthodox way. I want to go through, if you can be brief and concise, I'm going to let each one of you put your questions so you can hear them and you can have one minute <laughs> to say, to pick one thing to answer. But I'd, I'd like all your voices to go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I would like to have from one of you a proposal on a post-war financing framework for rebuilding Ukraine, such as Marshall Plan or EBRD or what would, uh, what would be a possible financing mechanism? Thanks. Thank you. Very good. Good example, concise. Okay, uh, there, Arthur. Hi, uh, so as it's been said, my name is Arthur. Um, it's also a bit related to the question of Tom. Uh, you talked earlier about how uh, some countries shifted their imports away from Ukraine and to other countries, especially, for example, uh, Russia in terms of uh, grains, of food. Um, I was wondering how it could, um, first of all, uh, help Russia economically in the short term, but also hinder uh, the long-term reconstruction of Ukraine, for example, in okay. terms of economics. Thank you. Svetlana. Thank you. Just a short question regarding the Russian leadership. Do you see um, that if the Russian leadership, as it currently stands, would change to the 
uh, liberal uh, party or liberal opposition party the war in Ukraine would end or if it's uh, the Russian society who inherently supports the war so there is no end uh, to the war as it is right now in case the uh, uh, leadership of the Russian society changes. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I would just like to hear a few words on, on China. So considering, okay, they proposed the peace plan, but they've also refrained from condemning the invasion. Uh, they propped up the economy, uh, increased trade by doubling trade. So would, uh, I mean, would you see the peace plan just as some kind of liberal mimicking? Or what does China or Beijing actually want to get out of this war? Okay, thank you. And did I let all of you, oh, one more here. Oh, two more, okay. There first and then here, and that's it. Hello, I'm Kerem from also uh, Development Studies. Uh, we talked about we talked about Crimea first, but I also want to uh, learn, I also want to know what your uh, thoughts about Donbass and its long-term prospects are, because the ethnic makeup of the area has quite changed because of the war in the last decade or so too. And is it a realistic chance that there can be any peace in that region, uh, considering the civilian makeup too? Thank you. And where, where did I see the last hand raised? So uh, my name is Renata and I'm studying global health policy here at LSC. Um, I'm also from Ukraine and I was wondering, so given how uh, US and the West has been very, very supportive and very proactive in Israel, did that create any sort of tensions within Ukraine and for Ukrainians given how US is saying, oh, we might even end up sending troops there and all of the support that they're giving to Israel? Like, do Ukrainians feel that um, they did not receive that kind of support when they needed it? Okay. All right. Very brief. You can pick one thing to respond to each briefly, and then we'll continue afterwards uh, informally. Thank you. Um, well, uh, so my one thing is the first two yeah. questions. I think right. the best framework would be a collective framework involving the EU, the World Bank, the UN as a coordinators. It needs to start before the war ends, actually. It needs to be economic support for reconstruction and sustaining um, you know, the economy starting from now. And it needs to be much more grant than loan because uh, I think Ukraine's getting to the point where it can no longer service ever-growing debt. Thank you. Anna. Well, I think um, the bar for the um, ending, con ending of the conflict is raised uh, so high. Uh, that no Russian leadership, however uh, moderate or progressive, would be able to um, go, go along with these conditions. So uh, I would say that uh, the prospects are for the uh, continuation of military confrontation, uh, and uh, then after maybe a few years, uh, there will be maybe softening of positions of both sides, uh, but I do not see it uh, with the uh, kind of uh, um, uh, mutually exclusive demands uh, being pursued. Okay, thank you. Um, right, so on the first question, because this is something I'm involved in a lot, actually I'm working on this, to work on, on top of what you already said, Mark. 
Um, yes, there need to be this coordinated platform, and there are already a lot of commitments, and there is a coordinated platform being developed. On top of that, there, there, there has to be lesson taken from Marshall Plan, but also what Ukraine needs is a developmental state. Because without relaxation of fiscal austerity and without a proper coordinated role of the state, especially we do not, we do not know when the war is over. Liquidation phase of rebuilding is happening now, and loads in, is ongoing now. Private investors don't go in war-torn countries. It's, the, it's through state procurement that a lot of work is being done. So uh, generally, kind of the revision of the role of the state is extremely important, and that is important, and, and, and developmental banks as well. And that is also uh, something that we, hear, we heard about during the World Economic Forum, about re, re enlivening of the new international economic order narrative of transforming the role of developmental banks getting rid of uh, ODS debt that is actually compromising uh, government's abilities to support basic needs of their population uh, and um, yeah, and kind of like, you know, prioritizing survi survival on the planet and, and recovery needs. Um, one, one thing I'll say about Donbass, because I think it's very important. Um, 2014 war and now current war are different ilks. Uh, ethnic composition, well, um, a lot of people fled and like calling, calling those who went to Russia refugees is not strictly speaking correct because they were forcefully removed people or forced to move. So for example, relatives of uh, state administrators were put on buses uh, with children a couple of weeks before the invasion started so that and shipped to Russia 